Are we all excited? Are we all excited? Really? You don't look like you're jumping out of your seat. Are you reading that book? Samarkand. Yes. Bought your recommendation. It's a great book. I was just confused because the one I have in my house is like this. Yeah, same. Which book is it? I was like, 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 I yeah, it's pretty. I like the gold. Yeah, I recommend it. It's really fun. Oh, you did a good job. Thank you. How far into it are you? I'm just trying it. Yeah. I just wanted to stop. It almost makes being in Communist Russia seem kind of fun. Honestly, that's being what I'm saying. It almost makes being in Communist Russia seem kind of fun. You get it. Yeah, but you get a sense that they were really alive. They really like it's a whole different life. It's crazy. It's like Mendel Futterfass. It's just really because our life is changing basically. Yeah, because it's a shame. He writes at the end of the book. Not because of the stuff. Not because of the stuff. Because of the way they viewed, like the way they dealt. Not about they had a certain situation. It's about like I don't know. He writes at the end of the book that like he writes at the end that. Those were some of the best days of his life. Hey, also how old was he? I don't agree. Also, said that about being in Siberia. I was a kid. He? No, him. I mean, he, no, he left when he was an adult. Really? Yeah. How old? Married, I think he had kids already. I'm not sure if he had kids already. Really? Yeah. He got, he got married there. Okay. There's a whole story there where his brother got married. What happened the first time there was a Febrenian in his house after he got married? Yeah, that was they awesome. Smashed all the they smashed all the stuff. That's, what, that's the first story I told. I told that's pregnancy after he got See, that's, I think that's amazing. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we're going to do chapter 8. Okay, so chapter 8 follows on the themes of chapter 7. Um, in chapter 7, we spoke about the complexities that come from Klippa Snoga. And in contrast with the, the three impure klipas, that the three impure klipas, there's no way to rectify, there's no way to elevate them, right? Even though it says that when Mashiach comes, Hashem will remove the evil completely, or the idea of doing tshuva, like we discussed yesterday, but those things are not, um, they're not the normal thing. In other words, there, there's nothing about the, about the three impure klipas themselves that's redeemable. Right. Even when we said that the, um, if you do truva out of this great love that, that transforms the sin into a merit, it's not because there's anything redeemable in the sin. It's just that the, the distance of the sin becomes the impetus of the truva. Right. Will we be able to finish chapter um, seven? Eight, eight. Eight? Yeah, I think so. I think so. We have today, we have three classes next week. And we have one class the week after. Yeah, we should, should be plenty of time. We have one class after next week? I believe so, just on. What? No, next oh, no, no, two classes next yeah. week. No, two we have three more. Yeah, but I'm not here Wednesday. Okay. Not Wednesday, not here.
Okay. God willing, I'm not here. Oh, is that right? No, but I'm going to America early. Okay, so. Okay. Okay, so continuing on this difference between the three impure klipas, which are not redeemable at all, versus klipas noga, which even when it descends into three impure klipas through indulgent, lustful behavior, it's redeemable, right? That was the, there was a big takeaway from this chapter, chapter seven. So continuing on exploring those differences, we have chapter eight. There is an additional aspect in the matter of forbidden foods. The reason they are called iser, changed, chained, is that even in the case where one has unwittingly eaten a forbidden food, intending to, it to give him strength to serve God by the energy of it, he has moreover actually, and he has moreover actually carried out his intention, having both studied and prayed with the energy of that food, nevertheless the vitality contained therein does not ascend and become clothed in the words of Torah or prayer, as in the case of permitted foods. So what happens if you eat something non-kosher for the sake of heaven? You didn't know it was not kosher. You did all of your due diligence to make sure that the food was kosher, and unbeknownst to you, the food was not kosher. Okay? And then you ate, it, you ate it for the sake of heaven, and then you actually use that energy to learn Torah, do mitzvahs, whatever it is. What happens to the life force of that food? You didn't know it was kosher. You didn't, you didn't you know, didn't it, know it, was it was not kosher. You didn't know, but in such a way, it's very important, in such a way that it's unwitting. Okay? I'm going to come back to that. Okay? What happens? Does that food become ascended into holiness? No. Even though you use the energy, that energy does not actually become holy. It stays the three impure klipas. Why? By reason of its being held captive in the power of the, of the sitrach of the three impure klipas. Stop there. Okay. So for this we have to understand that there are basically three levels of sin. Okay. Level number one we're gonna, is, called, is called in Hebrew, mezid. Mezid means it was intentional. That means you did something wrong knowing it was wrong. Okay? Then you have what is called shogeg. Shogeg means unintentional. It means you didn't know it was wrong. I could. What is Mezid versus Shogeg versus Lechayda? Okay. If you... Okay. So wh what I want us to understand right now is I'm not giving you a halacha class. So I want to get the ideas clear, even though in the actual practical halachas it's somewhat complicated, okay? So I'm going to speak in generalities, and I might even rough, uh, smooth out some of the rough edges of the idea so that the basic idea is clear. Okay? So let's start with a very simple thing. We're going to use um, an example that's brought in the Gemara. Okay? If somebody um, takes a, a rock, 
and throws the rock as hard as they can into a crowded, busy street and kills somebody. Is that mazid, intentionally killing somebody? Shaygeg, unintentionally killing somebody? Or lehoida, they were unwittingly killing somebody? So the Gemara actually calls this, and this is why I'm starting here, the Gemara actually discusses this and calls it what's called Karev Lamezid, which means it's not Shogeg. In other words, Shogeg, unintentional means that you were doing something that in no way did you have any reasonable expectation that that was going to result in the sin. Right? So if you throw a rock as hard as you can into a busy street, right? What could you expect is quite possibly going to happen? You hit someone and kill them, right? So is that full-fledged intentionally sinning? No. No. But it's, not, but it's already enough intention that it doesn't go in the shogig category. That's what I'm using. That. In other words, shogig means you really didn't intend to do that at all, right? What would be an example of shogig? Okay. You sat down, okay, um, and you ate some food. And you discovered the food wasn't kosher. When you sat down, did you intend to eat non-kosher food? No. Oh, you intended to eat kosher food. Turns out it wasn't kosher. That's unintentional. That's unintentional, right? Um, okay. Wait, sorry. So what is, what is the Lahoda? I'm not going to get to Lahoda soon. Okay. okay. So unintentional means that if you would ask this person to say, are you intending to do, so? are, are you planning on doing a sin? Are you planning on doing something that could lead to sin? Are you up for sinning? What would the answer be? Yeah. No. Okay. If you wake up Shabbos night and you turn on the lights by mistake, what's that? Is that shogig or amazing? Shogig, right? Like you just forgot it was Shabbos, right? Okay. Generally speaking, how does a person commit something that is shogeg? How does that happen? How does it come about that a person commits a sin unintentionally? It comes from a lack of awareness, right? Are you responsible for not being aware? Yes. You are held responsible for your lack of awareness, which is why sin offerings are brought for things that are shogeg. So let's say, for instance, you turn off, let's say you, you violated Shabbos because you forgot it was Shabbos. You're not supposed to forget. You aren't supposed to forget. So that's considered shogig, and you bring a sin offering. What if you violated Shabbos because you didn't care it was Shabbos? That'd be amazing. Okay. What if you violated Shabbos because you didn't know something was forbidden? What's that? No, that's shogeg because why didn't you find out whether it was permitted or not? Like, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question, yeah? When you go to the pharmacy, yeah, and let's say the pharmacist isn't there, right? Would you just like randomly take medications and start using them? Hopefully that medication works. Why? They're dangerous, right? So knowing that it's Shabbos and that there's many, many things that are forbidden on Shabbos, what should you do? Find out what you're allowed to do, right? Why didn't you bother finding out? Okay. I want to leave. I want to leave. Leave some. Okay. It's more for this discussion. We have to separate two things out right now. One, we have to separate children, and then we have to separate what we would call bali chuba. And the reason for that is both of those people, children, are generally not liable for anything, and bali chuba have a different category altogether because there's because 
Um, because the, because it's not that they didn't learn, it's they were prevented from learning. You understand there's a difference between those two things? Okay. Okay. But like, if I do something on Shabbos, it turns out it was forbidden, well like, why didn't I check to find out that you were allowed to do it on Shabbos before I did it? Right? That shows some lack of treating Shabbos seriously, right? Okay. So the basic rule is I didn't know that this is forbidden is not an excuse. That is still a sin. Is it the same as an intentional sin? No. Okay. Now, what happens if I do everything right? So let's say example of kosher food, right? What happens if I go through everything halacha mandates for me to check to make sure food is kosher? And then it turns out not to be kosher. It's beyond your control. Right. That's totally beyond my... It's totally... I had no... Like, in other words, if, I, if there's like, you know, if, if, if I go to, if I, let me give an example. I go to the store, right, and I buy some food, and it turns out it wasn't kosher. Well, then I'm at fault, right? Why didn't I check the hechsher? Why didn't I call a rub to find out what's is this product? Okay, right? If you're in Mahajan place and you think whatever. Right? Now, what happens, right, if the rabbi tells me this food is kosher and it turns out the rabbi was lying to me? Right. See, there's a difference there? That's loy hoida. Loy hoida is the idea that there, it was completely beyond my awareness at all. Well, I don't know. Do so, uh, this is where it gets tricky sometimes. Yes, sometimes no. But in principle, the idea is that no, right? This is what goes. So lehaida is synonymous with a concept called oynus. Oynus means it's beyond your control. Okay. So a classic example of eating non-kosher food, but lehaida would be if. It's, like, wouldn't it be different the it, way it plays out? It is. Because I is. guess you're aware. You just can't do anything. No, but the same thing is that it's not under your control at all. Right. Both of them, and both of them, and this is the common thing. In the loy haida, which is you had zero, it was completely unwitting. Right. And oinus, where you're being forced to. In both of those, you haven't actually sinned. This is the key. If I eat food that isn't kosher, and we can attribute that in some way to the fact that had I been more attentive to cautious, it wouldn't have happened, then am I at fault? Yes, I'm at fault. Is it the same level of sin as Mazid? No, it's not the same level of sin. Okay. But what if I eat the food without any sin on my part? So I'm a child. Or I'm not religious. And I didn't grow up religious. I don't know anything, right? Right? My education prevented me from knowing these things. Or, right, I did my due diligence to make sure that the food was kosher. I met all the halachic standards, right? And it still wasn't. It could happen. I don't know if you guys ever heard about the meat case in Muncie. Did you ever hear about yeah. the meat case in Muncie? Yeah. There was a very popular um, uh, butcher in Muncie. Well, actually, it wasn't a butcher. It was a grocery store that had a kosher butcher section. And it turns out the person who was running the, the, that place was purchasing non-kosher meat and selling it as kosher meat. But like, like, a, like a large part of Muncie was eating non-kosher food for an extended period of years. And there was like a, like, okay, now, the, 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 that's, a, that's a major issue, right? Okay, why? They didn't do anything wrong. Why, what's so bad about it? 
And what's so bad about it is is the is the problem. And this is key, is the problem the person's behavior or is the problem the food itself? Right, that the food itself is bound up with the klipa, regardless of whether you sinned or not. Yeah. So you didn't do anything wrong. That's not a sin, that's not considered a sin. No, if I go to the rabbi and say, can I eat from this butcher? And the rabbi says, yes, you can eat from this butcher. I do it. The Torah wasn't given to angels. I did everything right. It's very important to understand is that, that in Torah, there is a whole area of Torah which is called nemmanus. Nemmanus means believability. Okay? Give you an example, okay? If, are you allowed to marry an Anjou? No. no, right? Okay, so when you get married, you're gonna have a problem, which is how do you know the person you're marrying is Jewish? <coughs> what? So, so the halacha, right? so we could say, well, we should be stringent and you can't marry anybody because maybe they're not Jewish, right? Right, but the Torah wasn't given to angels, right? So Hashem says a standard, what's the standard, right? And depending on what area of halacha it is, there are different standards for when you are, are supposed to believe something or not supposed to believe something, okay? So, um, if somebody tells me that food is kosher, am I allowed to believe them? Someone comes and says, I know that this food is kosher. Yes. Yes. Now, what's that based on? Yeah, yeah but should you believe them? You are at some, if you're at someone's house and they're like, I made this all, it's kosher, Someone you just met yesterday, they look like a Jew. Like, should you just believe them, or like, are you supposed to be like, let me see the actual? Like, I don't know. So, so this is a good question. So the halacha is like this. The halacha is like this: that we have a principle, which is that we don't. We, every Jew is is presumed to be kosher, meaning not kosher like the food they're eating kosher. Is that they're so? If I have no reason to suspect the person of sinning then I'm not supposed to suspect them of sinning. Wait, so we're not supposed to, before we go to someone's house, ask if they have a kosher? One second, one second, one second. It's very simple, right? Do they keep, this is stuff. Is this person Torah observant Jew? So if someone is keep Shabbos, and their husband puts on tefillin, they cover their hair, right? So how, what do like, you know, like what their husband does? Like she looks like she covers her hair. Like, okay, so, 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 so. so what? I'm, no, I'm like, so what I want to do is I want to go through the halachas and then we can talk about another another aspect of this. Okay, the halacha is like this. Okay, if somebody is Torah observant and they tell you the food is kosher, then halacha says that that's good enough. Now, the, one second, one second. That's assuming, of course, that they're telling you the food is kosher because they know the food is kosher, right? If they're telling you the food is kosher, but they don't know the food is kosher, then that doesn't work, right? Like, the food is kosher. How do you know it's kosher? I'm assuming so. Well, that's not good enough, right? Now, they could tell you the food is kosher because someone else told you the food is kosher, right? That's fine. Because the same way they, you know, it's, they, it, they, if, if they could eat the food because someone else told them it's kosher, then they can tell you and you can believe that. By the way, this is how a works. Like, how do you know the food that you buy in the store is kosher? What does the hechsher mean? Someone said it was kosher. What makes that and what makes that person believable? That they're a rabbi? No, that's not what makes them believable. Halachically, what makes them believable is that they're a Torah observant Jew. That's what makes them believable. Okay. Now, obviously, you need to add something here called common sense. Okay. Um, there's a there's a concept in halacha that if a woman's husband goes missing, she's stuck, right? Because she, 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 
the husband isn't dead, so she's still married. She didn't get divorced, so she can't remarry, but she doesn't have a husband. This is a really bad situation. Does anyone know what this is called? This is called the Naguna. This is the original Laguna. Okay, now, there's all sorts of ways to, to figure out, maybe there's a way to like make it that the, this woman could marry. It's called freeing the Laguna. Like, is there enough evidence to assume the husband died, or is there a way to invalidate the original marriage or something, right? So there's, a, there's an old rabbinic saying which goes, before you find a way to allow the Laguna to remarry, you should make sure the husband's actually dead. Meaning, before we get into the actual halachas of whether halacha allows this woman to remarry or not, like, is it reasonable that the husband is dead or not? Because if it's not really reasonable that the husband is dead, then like, the whole thing is like, not really relevant. Right? If someone tells you that something is kosher, and there's no reasonable way they could know that, for instance, we're talking about kashas of a factory. Do they know, any, do, do they know how factories work? Right? They know, like, or let's say someone tells you that meat is kosher. Do they know the laws of shrita? No. So then you see there's a problem here, right? But now, let's say I have a, I have a Jew who, who... I have a Jew, and he says, I don't know the laws of Shrita, right? But I bought the meat from a kosher butcher who does know the laws of Shrita. Okay, well, then that's good enough. Okay? Um, they're believable, okay? Now, there's a separate issue, which is what if you have different standards in halacha, right? And you want to keep a higher standard. That's already a different thing, Right? Now, you can believe that they're not going to feed you treif. Right. But that doesn't mean they're going to feed you something at a higher standard. Right. right? Which becomes an issue, right? That could become an issue, right? I'm not going to get into that issue. That, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a different yeah. thing, right? So if somebody, for all intents and purposes, I mean, think about it. Have you ever been to someone's house for Shabbos? Yeah. Why did you eat in their house? Why is that okay? Because? That's right. That's how that works. Okay, now, what if they're not a Torah observant Jew? Can you believe them? No. Generally speaking, the answer is no. Right, this creates an interesting question. Like, what happens if someone is religious and their parents are not religious and their parents tell them that food is kosher? What? So that becomes interesting. There's an actual, uh, there's actual an opinion that says in that case, you c- the, the, the child who is religious can believe the parent who's not religious if the parent who's not religious respects the fact that their child is religious. Because in that case, the fact that extra care that parents have for their children, we don't think soon that their parent is going to mislead them. Um, if you have reason to, then you reason to do, right? If you reason to think, then you're not, right? Okay. But, but, but the thing is, halacha deals with it. So what happens if you go to the rabbi, and you're like, what am I required to be suspicious of? What am I allowed to accept? What, right? And you go through everything, and you're very from. You check all of the boxes, dot your eyes across your T's. You did everything right. Is it still possible the food wasn't kosher? Yes. Sure. Right? It's possible, right? And not even necessarily people are misleading you. Maybe nobody knows the food wasn't kosher, right? Does that change whether or not that food is three impure klipas? Does your ability, does, 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 does your intention to eat that for the sake of heaven and then do a mitzvah, does that elevate that at all? No, and that klipa therefore stays inside of you for how long? Forever. So we probably like, I'm sure there's been a time that like we've accidentally eaten non-kosher and had no idea to the state still know and we'll probably never know. Could be. So there's klipa in us that we literally just don't know. That's really scary. Which this explains a thing that religious Jews tend to have, which is which is odd. 
Religious Jews tend to have this obsession with kosher food above almost every other mitzvah. Have you noticed this? Like, I'll give you an example. It's so physical, though. It's so easy to... Well, the reason is because it literally becomes part of you, and... And it has nothing to do with whether you intended to do anything wrong or didn't, and you did everything right. So the, there's an interesting thing, like the rabbis, when they want to make sure that the, that the Jewish people do stuff, their go-to method is to involve food. <laughs> make bans on food. Okay. How about they ban raspberries? No, raspberries are not banned. They're not banned. There's like some there's rabbis that are like, like not It's very important to understand. There's no such thing. No rabbi in the world has ever banned raspberries. Uh-huh. There are rabbis who've said, since realistically it's very difficult to make sure the raspberries are bug-free, therefore one should not eat them. That's not the same thing as banning raspberries. If you eat the raspberry, right, and there are no bugs in the raspberries, it's okay. There's no raspberry, right? For example, like just a very simple thing, right? Um, if you take the raspberries and put them in the blender, yeah. then you can eat them. Because... Um, the rule about bugs is that if the bugs are pureed, then they're fine. Oh, really? Yes. As, lo- and th- as long as you're not pureeing the bugs because you want to eat the bugs. If you're pureeing the thing because you want to eat the thing and you just don't want the bugs to become a problem. No, it's fine. If, if, it, if, you're doing it be- if you're doing it in a situation where that's the only reasonable way to get rid of the yeser, then it's fine. So Tasha says. I think that raspberries, they still have raspberries. Do you want me to gross you out? Do you want me to gross you out right now? No. I'm going to do it anyway. I <laughs> know. I hate bugs. You ever drink wine? No. No. How, how do you think they get wine? Wine comes from fermented grape juice. How do they get grape juice? Grapes. How do you get the juice out of the grapes? No, not anymore. You crush the grapes. In fact, the now, have you ever been to a vineyard? No, with big machines. Oh, not just bugs. There's oh. bugs and like mice and snakes Ew. and lizards. And they, all get with and they go squeeze the whole thing. But it's like 99.5% grape juice. And the rest of it is like. And then it's alcohol, so it gets all. But yeah. Why don't they, they sit there picking out? out a, no, they don't. They don't? No. no. So why is wine kosher? Because there's an idea that if, 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 the, if, the, if the bug is not whole and the taste of it is disgusting and the only reason you crushed it was because you didn't want to violate the prohibition, not because you want to eat the thing that's, that's prohibited. What I mean, so the thing is like this: is the the halacha the the halacha is that it's based on it's based on feasibility. So if you're producing wine on a commercial scale, pulling out all the little snakes and stuff is not feasible. It would make the price of wine. No, you don't really eat snakes. You eat a little bit of snake juice. But whatever. I mean, this is why I get about about right. So. Well, I don't want to even. Yeah. I don't want to tell you, but this is true about everything you eat. Even apple juice. Everything, Every, especially juices, especially. <laughs> you know all those apples. You know all those apples. Like, oh, I would never eat that. You know what happens? Those are the apples that became that way in transit. The apples that are that way when they harvest them. You know what they do with those apples? Make apples. That's right. All those nice, fresh-looking. Okay, but here's the thing. Once, the, if the thing is, if the thing is forbidden. That's because the, the, the energy in that is of the three impure klipas and nothing you can do to fix that, whether or not eating it was a sin or not. Okay. Good? 
Yeah. Make sense? I would love to. I hate bugs so much. Okay. Now. <laughs> all right. That would explain, again, why. Now, Hasidim also tend to take kosher very seriously. Why would Hasidim take kosher very seriously? Like, why? What, what, traditionally, one of the things that was known about Hasidim is that Hasidim tend to be very stringent in the laws of kashras. So this is the underlying reason. So like take for so there's something called glat kosher. Have you heard of glat kosher? Yeah. Okay. So what is glat kosher? It's like a What? So there are things that make animals not kosher. One of the things is holes in the lungs. So after the animal is slaughtered, the shochet blows up the lungs like a balloon because lungs are a balloon. And if there are no holes, then the animal is kosher. No, actually. Because scabs mean that there were holes, right? That's kind of what scabs are. So if there's scabs on the lungs, it's not kosher. So you have to feel that there are scabs. Now, what happens if there is a scab, but you can kind of flick it off and underneath it's smooth? Well, that is a dispute. The Ashkenazi collection authorities rule that if you flick off the scab and it just falls off and underneath is perfectly smooth, then the animal is kosher. And the Sephardic collection authorities say, no, it has to be smooth from the outset. All Sephardis that have Yes. I mean, all the Sephardis that, that keep. Yeah. So now, in Europe, now I don't know if you know anything about cows, but cows tend to get holes in their lungs quite often, especially in Europe. So most cows were not had these little scabs you had to flake off and they're fine and so the Ashkenaz would eat them and that was great and the Hasidim would not eat such cows they wanted their cows to be glat kosher what is glat kosher? No. that they were smooth right? Um, and what, what the idea being the idea being is that if the food is not kosher then that means it comes from three impure klipas right? That means according to the Sephardic Kalecha authorities, this thing isn't getting its life force from the three impure klipas, right? And it's true according to Ashkenazim, it's not, but like, why do you want to get into that mess, right? If you care about the health of your soul, right? You wouldn't take the risk. You know, well, well yeah, why, yeah, well, well, you know. I would need something very extenuating to want to rely on that kind of opinion, and so hence the, uh, the, uh, the Hasidim tend to be very stringent about this. They would be, this is also why Hasidim were very stringent with Chal Yisra. Wait, so are Hasidim No, because there's areas in which the Sephardim are more lenient than Ashkenazim also. Yes, there is no one opinion that's stringent all the way across the board. Now, obviously, you, there has to be weighed against things. So you had certain Hasidim who were extreme. I'll tell you a story about a Hasid who was extreme. His name was Itcha the Masmid. You know what Masmid means? Diligent. Itcha the Masmid used to be, he was known as, as um, the Masmid because he was very diligent in his studies. Um, he would generally be um, learning 18 hours a day without exaggeration. It did a lot of hours. Okay. And he was very, 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 very careful with kosher food. Did he probably also very tired. Um, so for instance, okay, I'll tell you two stories about him. One story was in Russia, um, it was very hard to get bread that was pasisro. One of the things that the rabbis decreed is that bread that is baked by a non-Jew is forbidden, regardless of the ingredients. If a non-Jew bakes anything, baked any sort of baked goods, bread, cakes, cookies, chips, chi um, oh, that's, 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 that's special. No, no, 
bread, cookies, cakes, um, sourdough bread, bagels, everything. All baked goods, pretzels. If a non-Jew bakes it, it's forbidden. Okay? Is there any disagreement about this? No, no disagreement about this. Now, what the rabbis did say is that if the, it's commercially baked, then you can be lenient and you can eat it. So if a non-Jew has a bakery and they make stuff, assuming that all the ingredients are kosher, then you can eat it. Chassidim. And the Shochanach says on the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, one shouldn't rely on that. One should only eat bread baked by a Jew. Really? I never yes. heard that. Yes, yes, yes. Should be specific to be more careful. Yes, to be more careful on the 10 days of Tshuva between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Really Chassidim, on the other hand, you should always be careful because, like I said, I'm like, why do you want to like start playing around with three impure klipas, right? Now, in communist we Russia, uh, I imagine never. I don't know. I don't know. Tradition, because it only passes well. I mean, it depends. You know, sometimes it's harder. Sometimes it's easier, right? It's only like not right. You'd have to look at the hechsher, not the company. Anyway. So in communist Russia, in communist Russia, getting bread that was baked by a Jew, you could imagine, was very, very difficult. Yeah. Okay. Especially during the early years of communism, when between the famine and the war, right? There was no pasteurized bread. So the Hasidim ate the regular bread because the regular bread is technically kosher, it was commercially baked. And back in the day in Russia, like you didn't even need a hechsha on the bread because what went into the bread? flour and water and salt. And that was it. Like, there was nothing else in the bread. So you could just go to the stand of the bread line and get bread and eat it. Itch of the Masmid did not eat the bread. But there was nothing to eat. So he just went hungry. Because he would not dare contaminate his soul. So eventually the Hasidim decided they had to pull the wool over his eyes. And um, they, told him that, they told him that this bread was made by a Jew. That he would eat it. Um, is that okay? To lie to somebody to try and make sure that they that they don't starve to death? Presumably, it's okay. Anyway, the, the story goes. The story goes that um, he believed them. He believed no. That he he believed them, um, and um, he went to go wash, and the washing didn't go so well. Like he made a mistake in washing his hands, so he had to rewash. He washed a few times. Like you know what, already this is too much being involved in food. He didn't eat it. Actually, actually, I mean, he did not starve to death. He was burned alive by the Nazis in Auschwitz. So you know, but another story. Yes, another story is that he was staying in. I told you guys about the book Sabata. Yes. What Sabata we discussed, right? So. So the person in that who wrote that book, his name was Lazer Nanis. So, so, Itcher the Masmid was one time staying in the, the, the town of Kherson, which is where the Nanis family lived, and he was staying in the Nanis's house. And so Mrs. Nanis, Lazer Nanis's mother, wanted to know what she needed to do in order for him to eat in her house. And um, he said, if you get a new pot, you kosher the pot. I checked the knife of the sheikha right before he shechs the chicken, right after he shechs the chicken, and you only use that chicken, then I'll eat the food. <laughs> and in the end, she mistakenly added some extra chicken fat from another chicken, and he didn't know about that, but he didn't eat the food that she made. Okay. Now, 
the idea being like, where is all this extra, extra carefulness coming from? Well, the more valuable your neshama is to you, the more you become afraid of the three impure klipas, right? And if every issue about kosher food, whether I'm sinning or not is not the point. The thing itself, is it, is it contaminated with the three impure klipas? If it is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's going to become part of me. And why, again, the more valuable your soul is, the more careful you are with that. Okay, now, as a practical note, should that come at the expense of things that are more important? No. So what would an example of something that's more important? What would be an example of something that's more important than being extra, extra, extra careful with even the tiniest tent? So an example of something that would be more important is not offending your parents. So if your parents, Defending your parents? Yes. So part if your parents? It's part of, it's honoring your parents. So if your parents, if you have a personal stringency not to eat certain foods, but technically, right, you are of the opinion that it's technically permitted to eat, and your parents, and you'd be insulting your parents by not eating it, then what should you do? Eat it. You should eat it. Also, like, I know where I live, there's a study where you can't get like, Right, so, 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 so this is where you think having a mentor because on the one hand you don't want to be contaminating your soul on the other hand sometimes people get into this whole holier than thou thing and it comes at the expense of other very important mitzvahs such as honoring your parents peace between husband and wife and things like that and so there needs to be you know, the, the care and concern about, about the klipa in the food needs to be counterbalanced by um, you know, all these other things as well all right, now, this is so even when the prohibition is a rabbinic enactment, for the words of the scribes are even more stringent than the words of the Torah and so forth. So this is weird because when something is rabbinically prohibited, that means when God created it, was it getting its life force from the three impure klipas? No. No, because it was biblically permitted. So let's give some examples. Okay. There is something called bread baked by a non-Jew, which is forbidden to eat, right? Okay, commercially bread set that aside, but it was just big, big privately. Now, before the rabbis made that decree, that, that was permitted to eat, which means it gets its life force from Klippa Snoga. But as soon as they banned it, it's That's right. <laughs> Meaning when the rabbis are banning something, they're not just making a rule about what you can do, they're actually changing the spiritual makeup. Of the actual name. Right. And this is what our sages mean. It says the words of the scribes are more stringent than the words of the Torah. The rabbis have the power to change the spiritual makeup of something. It says that right here that the words of Rabbanon are more stringent. Yes. It's based on a, it's a quote from what? a Gemara. Yes. So God said this comes from Klippus Noga. And the rabbis like, yeah, we're going to change it. We're going to make it the three impure Klippus. So why is always um, Mizraban secondary? It's not. Who said it is? I thought it's Bidiyaman. No. I don't know. Where, where, where did you get that? No, I don't know that. What is Bidyevid? Bidyevid means after the fact. Right, so isn't after the fact many times Midaravana? No. No, the opposite. The opposite. Bidyevid. You said rabbis have the power to change the spiritual makeup of something. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so for instance. Wait, Where does the Gemara go? Like, no well, yeah, I mean, like, do you want me to have my whole spiel about, like, you know, the rabbis, like, having Ruach HaKodesh and stuff, or we just want to, like, we skip that part? Having what? 
My whole spiel about how the rabbis are divinely inspired and that whole thing. I'm saying the rabbis are not instructor. Yeah, no one's <laughs> Not right now. Oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah. So, so the rabbis make a special. Yes. So the rabbis. Well, so, listen to a previous recording. Yeah, it's somewhere. Okay. You just listen to all of my recordings. You'll find yeah, it eventually. I've talked about it a few times. I don't want to do it right now. Okay. So, so what that means is like this: that when the rabbis are making a rule, they're not just making rules that you have to follow. They're actually changing the reality of something. But then how does that work when there's like Sephardi and Ashkenazi? You want to hear a cool story? So there was a Jew who had sick with a certain disease. And he came to the Tzamech Tzadik, the third Chabad Rebbe, and said, what should I do? And he said, you should move to Israel. Because in Israel, they rule according to the Beis Yosef. And the Beis Yosef is of the opinion that this disease does not make an animal not kosher. The idea being is that it's not a terminal illness. But the Ramah, who they rule according to in Europe, does rule that the animal. So therefore, if you move, so if you move, therefore you'll be under the jurisdiction of the Beis Yosef, and therefore the spiritual makeup will be different, and as a result, the physical reality will be different. And he moved and lived a long life. Yeah. Moved and lived a long life. And that's his home. So like, if an Ashkenazi person marries more than a wife, he's physically possessed by If an Ashkenazi person marries more, I'm not sure what you're asking. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, she's not... But okay, well, like the, the actions are. The actions are, yeah. Yeah. So why are we so What? What are you confused about? <laughs> you spell out your confusion, I might be able to address it. Don't we always say, like, that the, by the Minashtana, that, like, the Midarabanan is the same as, like, the questions, and that's why it's in opposite order? I don't know, something. That Minhag is from the Yeah. Oh, Minhag. 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 Okay. 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 So now, this. So now, remember how we spoke about before? How about the 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 Klipas Noga has different levels to it? Yeah. Right. It's like a mixture of good and evil. So why do the rabbis make certain things prohibited? Why did they make them? Yes. So there's two answers. There is going to be. Uh, so there's there's two ways to understand why the rabbis make something prohibited. Okay, there's going to be what I'm going to call the non-mystical answer and then the mystical answer to this question. The non-mystical answer is like this. The rabbis see that there's a problem and they want to solve the problem. Okay? So what would a problem be? For instance, there's a problem with Jews intermarrying with non-Jews. How do we solve that problem? Well, if you can't eat the non-Jews cookies and you can't go over to their house for a barbecue, right? And you can't drink wine with them, right? Then you're probably not going to intermarry with them, right? Because, and you're like, well, I, you know, Bob, I can come over to your house for the barbecue, but I've got to actually turn on the barbecue. I know you bought me kosher meat and a new grill, but like that's not good enough. No, yeah, see, it's like your Gentile hands. I gotta like, I gotta turn the grill on. And he's like, well, that's kind of offensive. He's like, yeah, and then you're like, got this whole social awkwardness thing, and then, and then it's like, you know, he doesn't want to introduce you to his sister anymore, and then like, you don't intermarry. That's basically what the rabbis had in mind, and it works. By the way, if anyone has ever had to tell a non-Jew, Jewish acquaintance, that going out of their way to make me kosher food isn't good enough because um, you touched it, so I've got to like do something, and they find that kind of offensive. It's and it's meant to be. <laughs> like that was the plan. Because somebody who cares about that isn't thinking of going out with a non-Jew. Oh, but that's not true. Really? That's not true. Thinking of going out with a non-Jew, you probably don't care that much. Right? Well, no, no, no. Things happen in gradual stages. That's how that works. 
friend. That's right. I mean, let me put it this way. You are, most most people grow. Let me put it this way. Most people who grow up religious are probably intending to marry someone religious, right? That tends to be the case, especially if they're still religious. Okay. Now, I happen to many cases where that didn't happen. Do you know why that doesn't happen? Because people have this great thing about people, which is that they're social. And as you become closer to somebody, remember I spoke about how your horizons move? Yeah. Okay, so for instance, I know of a case where there was a, a girl who's like really, she was really super from and everything, and um, her, her parents are like well-known people, and her grandparents are like very famous people. I'm not saying who this person is. And um, she had a school project, and her school project was she was gonna make a video about um, the importance of lighting Shabbos candles. And she really wanted to put her all into it, so she wanted to have it professionally edited. And which she means she, had, she ended up marrying. No. She ended. No, I can't hear this story. Yep. Seriously. No. Yep. She married. What? She Jewish. <laughs> she was Jewish. Oh my gosh. And I will just point out. I will. I will. He. He married. <laughs> she married the guy. I will tell you the issue. I will. The Shabbos candles. So she's Jew. They got married. About five or six months later, she gave birth. Okay. People's sense of what is acceptable changes as you get Well, this is the thing: is that there's enough people. No, she was pregnant before she got married. Yes. How did this happen? Because this is this is this thing. One of the things that this, the, one of the things that no, that's the thing. On the contrary, this is exactly why the rabbis made most of their decrees. Okay, well, she didn't one night go to him and say hi and have babies. That's not how these that's things, that. things happen. She's a normal person. They were hanging out. She rationalized it. She said, "Oh, whatever." This is this is by the way. This is, the Gemara says this quite explicitly. There's no such thing as people having these red lines. Yeah, if it was normal and stable, which is why the Rabbana made an interesting gazera. One of the gazeras they made was, should single boys and single girls spend time alone together? And the answer is the rabbis made a rule. It's not, single boys and single girls is rabbinic. Single boys and single girls are not allowed to hang out alone together. Why, the rabbi said, because that's what happens. Okay? Why are people not allowed to fraternize with non-Jews? That's a real rabbinic law. Yes, it's a real rabbinic law. You know who made up that rule? David Melech. That's yichud or that's yichud. There's that's biblical. There's yichud that's rabbinic. Yichud that's right. biblical is a married woman or something right. like that. Yichud that's rabbinic is they could get married. So, and the David Melech said this is a bad idea. This is leading to a lot of problems. This is I think. Now, is it every person that this is an issue for? No. No, but what? How many people do you need? For something to be a problem before you make a law. Like, how many people have to die in car accidents before they made a law that everyone has to have seatbelts? No, not one. Probably. Big person. How many people? Was it, it, it's probably less than 10% of people. Probably less yeah, than 5% of people. What? Much less than 10%. Much less than 10%. If one out of every 20 people, one out of every 100 people, something is happening to so that's enough to like get involved, right? So does that mean every single person? No. And here's the strange thing. like. There's a lot of like, if you just start going through history, there's a lot of assimilation. But the assimilation is not en masse. It's one person here and one person there and one thing there and one thing there. So what the rabbi said is, you know what? How do we step, make sure this doesn't happen? I know the story. How do we make sure people don't assimilate? How do we make sure that immodesty doesn't happen? How do we make sure people are keeping Shabbos properly? What are we going to do? The Shabbos kind of story is scary. It is scary. It could have, that, that, the, the Gemara says that. The Gemara says that about every single person. Anything you do, you know, it's just like crazy that I'm like, you can never trust yourself. 
That's what the Gemara says. Yeah. Never trust it's yourself. The Gemara says a person should never trust himself. Right. And it's just crazy. It's, a really, it's like a really crazy thing because we do. It's like, okay, Mary. No, let's see. Even after Mary, you can't trust He was Jewish. He wasn't religious. I'm saying it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. It could be worse than it could But the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, the thing is. Why are you freaking out? Like, because, because Jim, if you would have asked that girl four months ago if she ever would have done that, she would have said, never, ever. I know what I'm saying. He could have been a non Jew. It could have been way worse. Okay, that's, well, that's but but you know what? For the very same price, if the story hadn't happened in Israel and it happened in Toronto, he would have been non-Jewish and it was the same thing. The, the point. The point is. The point is. So the the, the non-capitalistic answer is very simple. The rabbis see there's a problem. That not everybody, not a majority, not even a sizable minority of thirty percent. It could even be 5%, 2%. But it's enough that I was like, this is not a once in a while type of thing. This happens on a frequent enough basis that we're going to make a rule that applies to everybody to protect those, those that are going to fall. That's the purpose of it. What ended up happening is that he, be, what happened is that they realized like this is like a, a thing. And so he decided that he, like they get to be married. And, like, and so he became from. And, um, Actual from? Well, Listen to the story. He became from, and so he went from being like total secular Israeli to like kapata beard and everything in the span of like, you know, a few months, and they got married, and um, and then the you know within a year the kapata went off, the beard went off, because like that obviously isn't very real, um, and she basically just had to decide like whether she wants to like stay with him and not be so religious, or she and she decided to stay with him. Now she's just like traditional. Now, the, the, the point is the, the point is the rabbis looking at this and the rabbis have to say like we're responsible for everybody and, and it could happen to anybody it won't happen to everybody it won't happen to most people but will happen to enough people that we have to do something and so in this case David and Melch made a rule which is you don't hang around people right the, the rabbis made rules about you know, about non-Jewish food. They make all sorts of rules, right? Shabbos, right? People end up violating Shabbos. We're gonna, they make things as fences because it prevents a slippery slope. Okay, that's the, that's the, non, that's the non-Kabbalistic reason. So then, when they're doing things like that, they're making them equally as bad and they're changing the spiritual makeup of that. One second, one second, one But this non-Kabbalistic reason, we don't have to get to that. We're just, and therefore the issue is on the person. The person is not allowed to do that thing anymore. Okay, so let's get some other examples. Are you allowed to have milk and ch and chicken together? No. Why not? Why did the rabbis make that rule? Why would you accidentally have milk and meat? Right, because the Torah says you shouldn't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Right. So you go to the Gestetner's house, and the Gestetner's for Shabbos are serving chicken parmesan because the Torah doesn't prohibit it, right? And you're like, oh, that was really good. And someone says, you know, there's a prohibition of, of, of meat and dairy. And you say, where? And you open the Torah and says, no, she could not cook a kid in his mother's milk. You say, ah, well, I understand why the Gestetner's served chicken parmesan because chickens and are one species, and the, the mozzarella cheese or parmesan cheese comes from cow milk. There's another species. So that means I can have a you know, a, a beef burger with goat cheese because it's the same principle. 
And then you just violated the biblical law because you think you're doing the same thing that you saw by the Gestetners. So the rabbis come to the Gestetners saying, no more chicken parmesan because all these girls eating your house don't know the laws of kosher and they're going to make some funny interpretations based on reconciling what they read in Chumash, what they saw in your house. So no one's allowed to do that anymore. Now again, who is this law made for? It's made for people who know what they're talking about? No, it's made for the people who don't know. But the people who don't know now. So this is the thing. There's always some minority of the people that there's a genuine concern they're going to sin and so the rabbis make rules saying you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. Good? All right. What's the Kabbalistic reason why the rabbis make rules? Because uh, there's like energy and kubitmas and they see that... Um, What's easier to do? To elevate a klipa the more evil it has or the less evil it has? the less evil it has, right? So remember how we said that the Klippas Noga is a mixture of good and evil? Right? So as the generations of the Jewish people go down, their ability to elevate things also goes down. Which means Klippas that could have been elevated by holier people can't be elevated by... Right. And so the idea is that if you were alive in the generations of the first temple and your soul was on a much higher level because of that, could you have elevated the klipa in the chicken and the milk? Yeah. Sure. But now, our, our soul's on our lower level, and we can't elevate that klipa. And so the rabbi said, we are going to effectively treat it as if there's no good in here at all. When the rabbis make that rule, whatever good was there is removed. In other words, what the rabbis are doing is they're saying, since most people can't elevate the good out of this klipa snoga, therefore we are going to make it as if that there's no good there. When the rabbis make that decree, God, as the Medrash says, the tzaddik decrees and the Hashem fulfills. Whatever good was left in that thing, now is not there. Not there. So, and so they move it from, since most people can't elevate it, they say, okay, well, if most people can't elevate it, there's nothing to elevate anymore. So you're saying that if there's something we can do now and they used to do. Mm-hmm. When they did it, was, it was they were like, like the, I'm saying you're saying like, like let's say before Yehud, before even they even had the issue, like before that when it wasn't an issue, the people were like they didn't have strong like. So what does that mean practically? No, what does it mean? What does it mean practically? Okay. What it means practically is that, and this is going to be said something we're going to see at the end of the chapter. Not every person can elevate every klipa snoka. Okay. Um, someone once asked the Tzemach about a particular kind of klipa, which I'll talk about later, and he says, if you want to eat snakes and scorpions, you have to have a very hard, you have to have a very tough stomach. You don't have a tough stomach, so you shouldn't be eating snakes and scorpions. The idea being that to, to, to elevate the good in this klipa, you need to work through a lot of negative things, and you don't have the spiritual ability to do that, and instead of you elevating it, it's going to drag you down. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger, right? And we saw this, right? When we spoke about, like, right? On the one hand, it can drag us down, especially if we do it in indulgent way. On the other hand, we could elevate it, right? But that mixture is not the same. It's like brushing your teeth. How much evil is there in brushing your teeth? Yeah. Not so much, right? Relatively speaking. But when the rabbis see that something has a lot of negativity in that klipa snoga and that the generations are no longer of the level where people can be expected to elevate that klipa, then what do they do? So how do we elevate anything that was done for loss? Because that's even harder than people's 
No, but because remember, if it was done out of lust, but it was never prohibited, no, no, you, you do tshuva, and a mild form of tshuva, right? Because since you're the one that brought it into the three impure clippers, you can take it out, right? But once, once the rabbis have the sense that this is something that, that people just aren't able to do generally, then what do they do? They, when they ban it, what they're actually doing is they are removing anything redeemable from the thing. So there's not, it's not like, well, I wish I could elevate. There's nothing left to elevate it. If, in other words, I'll give you an example. You never like, have kids who are like, just are not at the level of the class? Yeah. And like, it's not fair because like, they're not able to like, you know, pass the tests. So what do we do nowadays? We just lower the standards. You modify the standards of the test and the kids can pass, right? So what do the rabbis do? It's like, if most people can't elevate this klipa, then what do they do? Modify it. They modify it so there's nothing to elevate. <laughs> and that's what makes it prohibitive. Because we'll be higher on Shiafkam, we'll keep mitzvahs So right now we're talking about prohibitions. There's mitzvahs derivant and prohibitions. I mean, oh. So as a, as a general rule, the, as a general rule, all the things that the rabbis prohibited will not be prohibited when Mashiach comes. Yeah. Moreover, even in the temple, even when the rabbis made these prohibitions, the, 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 as a general rule, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, things the rabbis prohibited are not prohibited in the temple. Okay? And again, one idea is that in the temple, people were more careful, so you didn't have to worry about people stumbling. And the other idea is that in the temple, people are on a higher spiritual level, so they were able to elevate it. Okay? But the idea is that what the rabbis are saying is that since you can't elevate it, we're going to take away the thing that could be elevated, so there's nothing left to elevate, so you don't have to feel like you're losing out. It's like, well, how am I going to elevate my neighbor's cookies? And the answer is not to elevate your neighbor's cookies anymore, so you don't have to worry about it. That's the idea. So they're actually changing the spiritual makeup of the thing. All right. Now. Are you ready to learn about demons? Uh, makes me a little nervous. <laughs> a lot, Okay. Okay. So. I'm going to make your life a little bit more complicated. Be honest. There you go. Yeah, I thought God's part of it. There's no reason why God couldn't be part of a good life. But, but God as part of a good life is not the same thing as just wanting God, right? Those are not the same thing. Okay, good? Are those a difference? Okay. 
Okay. Then we have something that is called the Yetzer Hara. What does the Yetzer Hara want? The evil. The evil inclination. What does it want? You to go against God. One life. It wants you to sin. That's right. It wants you to sin. That's what it wants. It wants you to sin. Who is sinning good for? Is it good for you? No, they're really not, are they? It's good for your animal soul. No, it's not. No, it's good for his life. It's I thought they were much more insane. One second, one second, one second. The Eight Sahara, the Eight in fact, the Eight Sahara wants things that are bad. Now, if you sin, let's just go on a basic level. Number one, if you sin, what's going to happen? You're going to get punished. Is that good for you? No. No. Okay. Number two, if you sin, you're going to be further from God. Are you going to be deserving of his special blessings and grace? No. No. Is that good for you? No. No. Um, if you sin, okay, um, are you going to be able to have a good afterlife? Have a, forget it. Are you going to be able to, in, able to have the benefit of connecting to something deep and meaningful like God? No. No. In fact, for that matter, if you get in the whole sinning mode, are you even going to be able to have a decent relationship with other people if the sinning no. goes deeper? No. So who is the sinning benefiting? Is it benefiting your godly soul? No. 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 Is it benefiting your animal soul? No. Also no. It's benefiting the Sahara. Maybe. Okay. All right. Then you have the Yetzer, a toad. Okay? What does the Yetzer toad want? The Yetzer toad wants you to do mitzvahs. Good? But that works together with the, with the godly soul? Well, aren't mitzvahs good for you? Yes? Yeah. Okay. So now, if I put this all over here like this. Yeah. Okay. The godly soul and the animal soul are going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. Because the godly soul doesn't care about the quality of life. It just cares about God. And the animal soul doesn't care about God. It cares about the quality of life. But there is a possibility that the animal soul will come to realize that having a good life does involve connecting to God, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, the intertobe might actually persuade that, you know, it's good for you in any number of ways to do mitzvahs, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, maybe the Yetzir Tov is like the godly soul coming to the animal soul in disguise, like saying, you know, these mitzvahs things are really good for you because, you know, they make you live a more meaningful life and you feel more connected and all that good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So you can kind of see how, like, the godly soul, kind of using the Yetzir Tov as a kind of a way to persuade the animal soul and things, right? That makes sense? Mm -hmm. Where's the Eight Sahara coming from? He wants to take your animal soul and push it to his side. Mm -hmm. He wants to take a good life and take it from a good life to convince you that doing sinning is having a good life. That's right. And who would be motivated in getting you to sin? The Eight Sahara. But why? Because that's how he survives. He needs to feed off that. Mm. So? He's a demon. That's right. The Klippa has these little demonic hell spawns known as the Eight Sahara. And their job is to come to the animal soul and convince the animal soul, you know what would be really good? 
Sinning. Sinning is great. It's oh so much fun to sin. It makes your life so worthwhile. Okay? So let's just understand things here, yeah? If you had just, right, if, if the only voice in you was the animal soul, what would you do? You would eat food, right? Because, I mean, if you don't eat food, you'll be hungry, you'll die, right? You would, you know, try and have a family, right? You would, you would like, live like, you know, a decent person, right? You know, you would try to do something that that's, you know, seems meaningful, not being too different. Okay. Um, if you have a yates or tov, you have this thing that tells you, you know, you should like, you know, like chop his candles and, and uh, say brachas and like, they're trying to get you to feel like that's a really good thing to do. Okay. If you had a godly soul, just have a godly soul, it'd just be something like some sort of like trying to connect to the aim sofa or something like that, right? And if you eat Tahara, is the voice telling you to do all the stuff that you really shouldn't be doing. And here's the thing. Is it, the eight Sahara is attacking who? Animal. The animal soul. Okay? Right. And the way to think about it is like this is think about the eight Sahara. Think about the eight Sahara as like a craftsman. And your animal soul is like a piece of clay. And so what is the Yetzirah trying to do? Mold it. Trying to mold it. Right? That's actually the word Yetzir, which we usually use in inclination, comes from the word, the word Yetzir, which means to shape. It's a shaping force. It's trying to shape your animal soul to see the good life in the form of sin. What's the Yetzirah Tov trying to do? To get your animal soul to see the good life in terms of mitzvahs. If you didn't have a Yetzirah Tov and Yetzirah, what would your animal soul do? Well, think about it. Think about think about a monkey. What does a monkey do? You just live. Yeah, you take care of yourself. You live, right? You know, you take care of yourself. Take care of your like group and like you know you live your life. You can say that about that non-Jews. That's right. Non-Jews don't really, truly, truly, truly have an, an Yitzhara, but we're not going to get into that right now. Okay. <coughs> okay. Yeah. So there's actually a story. There was a there was a chassid who used to teach a tiny class, and he taught it to like to simple Jews. And uh, the Rebbe Shabbat and like how he explains things. So he says, I explain like the eight Sahara is like your negative character traits. Everyone has their negative character traits. And so the Rebbe Shab said, he, he expounded a great length how that's not wrong. And he says, but the truth is that the eight Sahara is a demonic force inside your heart. That's the truth. The truth is that, that what we call, now some, we call the eight Sahara is that force that's shaping our animal soul to see the good life in terms of the things which are sinful. Okay, so much so that we, and, and, and it's so effective that so much so we often will use the term Yetzirah and animal souls interchangeable. Right. But really, is they, are they interchangeable? Well, they both get their um, life from Gimel, I'm from the three, whatever. What? From the Gimel um, we're gonna see. Because if we're that, gonna, that's why we are taking them interchangeable. We're gonna see. Okay. Okay. So therefore, also the evil impulse, the Yitzhahara, and the force that strains after forbidden things is a demon of non-Jewish demons which is the evil impulse of the nations whose souls are derived from the three impure klipas. So where does your Yetzirah come from? The three impure 
Okay. So here's the thing. Place of Klippas, and they come from there, so they're hell spawn and they're demons, right? So I didn't make up the word, I just like using it. <laughs> so the three impure Klippas produced this little hell spawn thing, the Yetzirah, which is trying to get the person to do what, what kind of things? Sins. But which kind of sins? Sins that are things which are forbidden. Well, no, we're going to talk about forbidden. Yes. Okay. So now here's the thing. When God created a Jew and gave them a body, does the body come from the three impure klippas? No. No. What about your animal soul? No. Your godly soul? No. Where does your animal soul come from again? Klippas noga. And your body? Also klippas noga. So. So when God created the Jew, was this part of the equation? No. No. So in other words, let's say God made you. Really good. And so if God, so in other words, like this, the Jew that God made, right? If you're talking about what God's doing, that Jew has a godly soul, clothed in an animal soul, with this Yitzhak Tov thing trying to convince the animal soul that the good life is Torah mitzvahs, right? And that's it. Yeah. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. So where did this whole Yitzhak thing come from? I'm going to be going to God created that too. Well, we made them when we do Averis. But how did you do the Avera in the first place? Well, the first place was the little On the other hand, the evil impulse and craving force after permissible things to satisfy an appetite is a demon of the Jewish demons. For it can be reverted to holiness as explained above. So, how many types of Yitzharas do you have? Two. Two. You have a Jewish Yitzhahara and a non-Jewish Yitzhahara. No, no, no. Okay. So it works like this. You have the three Imperclipas. Now, here's the thing. The three Imperclipas have no contact with... Like, if the three Imperclipas would come to you and say, you know, you should do something, that's, you know, irrevocably klipa, you would say, well, I mean, the godly soul through the Yitzhah Tov has given me the sense that the good life is found with mitzvahs, so why would I do something that's completely contrary to mitzvahs that can never be elevated into a mitzvah, right? That's like outside my horizon. It's beyond the red line, right? So can the three impure klipas just come and like tell you to sin? No. So the first thing they do is they give you a Jewish Yitzhah Okay, now what does a Jewish Yetzirah want you to do? Pleasure. Love. It wants you to sin. But what kind of sin? Not the sin of forbidden things. The sin of lust, right? Seriously? That's right. And then it comes and says, you know, 
And now the animal soul is like, on the one hand, it's getting the message that the good life is found in mitzvahs, right? On the other hand, it's getting the fact that the good life is found in indulgent, lustful behavior. Now, could you reconcile those two things? After all, if you engage in lustful behavior, could you then elevate it afterwards into the mitzvah? Yes or no? If you do something that's kosher permitted, just lustful and indulgent, can it then be elevated into the mitzvah? Yeah. Yes. So how does this work? Okay. If someone comes and tells you that you should eat non-kosher food, like, dude, why would you want to eat non-kosher food? That goes against, that's like incompatible with mitzvahs. And you're getting this message that good life is found in mitzvahs. On the other hand, if someone tells you that you should eat like really, really kosher, but really, really good cheesecake, because it tastes so, so good. And plus, when you're doing it, you're after all fulfilling a Jewish custom. Plus, aren't you making the person who made the cheesecake happy? Plus, you know, doesn't it give you the power to serve Hashem? You're not you're like, being right now, because also you told us it wasn't so bad. I know, so I know. I'm just saying, I'm just the... And now, you, that, and that forms the animal soul to seeing that the good life really is found in lustful things, right? And what happens when you do something lustful? It goes before into you, the... Before you do truth, Before it, it goes into three impure klipas. And now, once, now that gives them, now you kind of, and once that happens, it takes you to the non-Jewish Yetzirah. And that makes you want to sin. But what kind of sins? Sins that are actually forbidden. So it works like this. The Gentile Yitzhahara has to have like a, you know, it's like some someone has to have a connection made. Who introduces you to the Gentile Yitzhahara? The Jewish Yitzhahara. Which means, what if how it happened if you were born and you never indulged once in your life? That you never would have the, the... You would never have a desire oh, to do anything to, forbidden. So that happened to Sadiqim? That's right. Sadiqim, and for that matter, even people who are not Sadiqim, if you never, ever, 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 Which ever indulge, ever, you never met the three impure klipas, right? If you never met the three impure klipas, <laughs> then there's nothing so inside your... Do they have a Jewish Yitzhahara? What? Yes. Um, even Sadiqim? No, Sadiqim don't for other reasons. But um, Bainanim... A Bainanim could get to a point where he doesn't have the Yitzhahara to do something sinful. Because what happens if you cleanse yourself of the three impure klipas and you never indulge after that? Then do you ever come into contact? It's like, it, it, you know, it's like, it's like sometimes like you have friends which you really shouldn't have because those friends introduce you to their friends and then before you know it, like, that was just a bad thing. Yeah. So what happens if that first friend you're like, it's true you're my neighbor, it's true I can't get rid of you, but I know you're bad influence, so I'm shutting you out. <laughs> then you never meet his friend. Okay, what's very important is Alter was saying something fundamental. Is it natural for a Jew to desire to eat non-kosher food? No. To have non-kosher relationships? It is, exactly. Saying is, this Jewish Yitzhahara, right? That's not either natural. It, it, it is, because the animal soul is klipas noga, and it's telling you to do things which are conducive to mitzvahs, right. and so it, there's a natural affinity. No, but I'm saying the Jewish Yitzhahara is not either natural. Sure it is. Oh, it is? Yeah, because, the one is it? because again, if my animal soul, in its essence, what does it want? It wants a good life, right? Yeah. Is going against God going to give me a good life? No. No. Is Torah is going to give me a good life? 
Yeah. Yes. So the Yitzhahara, the Yitzhahara comes to the animal soul and is trying to say, like, look, this gives you a good life. Okay. And that's kind of, so the natural kind of state of a Jew is that you've got an animal soul wants the good life, you're being influenced by the Yitzhahara, wanting to do Torah mitzvahs. Then you have this Yitzhahara, Jewish Yitzhahara, saying, it's like, yeah, but you can indulge along the way. It's okay, because, like, at the end of the day, everything you're indulging in is permitted, right? And it'll eventually come back to Torah mitzvahs anyway, right? It's like, why can't you have some fun along the way? But then once you take that little detour, where you entered into a whole different realm, the realm of the three impure klipas. Then what happens? Then the non-Jewish demonic force latches onto you. And even when you do tshuva, does it disappear? Depends what kind of tshuva you do, not necessarily. And then you develop an appetite for things that are forbidden. Okay, that's great. But like, so practice... Which means that Hasidim had the... What means is that Hasidim, as a general rule, did not try and battle the Yetzirah for forbidden things. Because if you're battling that, you already lost the war. Right. Like, where's the actual battle line? The battle line is with the Jewish Yetzirah, because the Jewish Yetzirah is the thing that introduces you to three impure klipas. So if you're on your guard with that, you don't have to worry about the... Right? So, it was... Right? The, 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 question, the question that Hasidim would always ask themselves is am I living, am I trying to live a life that's about connecting to Hashem and therefore there's less and less room for indulgent behavior? Or, right, not. Because once I'm, and once like I'm not doing that, then the indulgent behavior eventually leads to developing an appetite to do things that are forbidden and then I'm gonna be battling over doing things that are forbidden versus permitted and like at that point, like I've lost the war. I might win a battle, but, I, but I, I'm, I mean, if, if I put this in, if I put this in, um, context of like a relationship, it makes a lot of sense, okay? Would you say a normal part of a relationship is dealing with, um, we all have a selfish tendency to ourselves? And so you have to like keep that in check in a relationship? Yeah, and so the question you have to ask yourself in a relationship is I'm building a sense of togetherness and respect and love and closeness, right? And not letting my selfishness distract me. And I can, I can allow the selfishness in a certain amount and rationalize it, right? But it, de it depletes the quality of the relationship, right? Okay. If you're operating on that level, do you have to worry about maybe that you're engaging in abusive behavior? If you, what you're doing is you're trying to make sure that your relationship is loving and respectful and honest and keeping any selfish, although perfectly legitimate and perfectly reasonable types of things out of it. If that's what you're working on, then like abuse is like a non-issue, right? But what if like you've already made peace with the fact that you're selfish in this relationship? Is there like a nice hard line between like what's just being selfish versus what's abusive? Is that a hard line or is that gradual? Yeah. It is gradual, right? And once you get used to interacting where it's all about what you get out of it, right? You start taking advantage of the person, you start being dishonest of the person, you start being more controlling of the person, and then who knows where you're at. So Chassidim was like, what? like, the battle is not forbidden versus permitted. Because if that's what I'm battling, I'm already in the throes of the three impure klipas. The battle is not to let the three impure klipas become part, something that I'm comfortable with, even when they're redeemable. Right? So, which is why Chassidim spent a lot of time talking about not, not sinning, but doing things for the right reasons, developing Abbas Hashem, not letting yourself be distracted and indulging things that have no place. And if you do that, then right? the fact that a person is struggling with the temptation to do something that is 
irredeemably evil, something that is truly sinful, forbidden, that itself means that they're already in the throes of the three impure klipas. A Jew naturally is only exposed to the Jewish Yetzirah. Does this make sense? And by the way, this is actually very hopeful because what does this mean? What happens if you put in the effort to really make it that your life is about relating to Hashem? You will find that even though your Yetzirah doesn't go away, the Yetzirah is not going to be for like the things that are forbidden. The Yetzirah is going to be for the permitted things. The Yetzirah for forbidden things is not like a life sentence. It itself is a sign that, there's, that, that a person isn't, isn't truly... You know, unless Hashem gives a person a specific test, but as a normal everyday type of life thing, the fact that we always struggle with the Yetzirah doesn't mean we always struggle with doing things that are forbidden. You do get to a point where like kosher food, there's a non-kosher food, not forbidden relationships, and violating Shabbos, and it, just, it doesn't, doesn't pull you. That means you still have the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is to indulge and to rationalize your indulging. That, that's something that is you know, unescapable for most of us. So knowing that there's nothing redeemable about the clip about the clip of things that are truly forbidden also helps us realize that the yitzhar for those things is really um, it's really something that's extraneous to who we are as people. It's something we should not normalize. We shouldn't think, oh, it's just a normal part. It's not a normal part of life, and you can get rid of it. All right. Fine. Tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next week we will talk about what the clip actually does to the soul. Different kinds of clip effects. Thank you.